0: Okay, be honest. How many of you at some point in your life have uh, sneaked a peek at some gift that you're getting for Christmas? Have actually taken a look at... at yeah, okay, I see a few hands. Very nice. Uh, yeah, we, we... Let's just be honest. We've done that. Or maybe, you, maybe you've gotten measuring tape out and you've like tried to like figure out exactly the dimensions of the box to know what you're going to be getting or you've shaken it a little to see if it sounds like what you're hoping for. Uh, when I was in... Maybe middle school, uh, I had probably the most anticipation I had ever had for Christmas morning because back then I was deeply obsessed with World War II airplanes, and in some catalog or magazine or something, I had seen this painting of a Spitfire shooting down an ME 109 and it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. And I asked my parents, I would love to have that painting so I could hang it up in my room. Uh, and I, I remember asking them that and just I was so excited, anticipating uh, getting this painting. It was gonna be the coolest thing ever. Well as Christmas got closer, I was waiting and excited and my parents told me we got you something really cool. It's a kind of your big gift for the year. It's gonna be really cool and I was like it's the painting. It's gotta be the painting. I was really, really pumped. But as Christmas got a little bit closer and closer, I kept looking for a painting-sized parcel under the tree, and it never showed up. And then Christmas morning, sure enough, they said, here's your big gift. And it was not in the shape of a painting. But I opened it up and I pulled out my very own super cool real leather bomber jacket. And I was devastated <laughs> because it wasn't a painting. Now, looking back as an adult, I'm like, wait, that was actually the perfect gift for a nerdy middle school kid. Like I, wa- I walked around like a bomber pilot. It was awesome, right? But like at the time, I, you know, my hopes were dashed. You, you, get, you get it. My point is, we all experience that, that sense of anticipation and that sense of waiting. It's like a, like a basic human emotion. Uh, sometimes we're waiting for things that are good, like Christmas presents, or waiting for our, a loved one to return home from that trip, or, or we're waiting for you know, something great, like the release of that new product that we've been excited about, or, or for family vacation, or whatever. We wait. Again, it's, it's a very common emotion that we all experience. But of course waiting is also sometimes not so positive sometimes it's the kind of waiting that you feel deep in your gut it's an anticipation of something that could even sometimes include a little bit of dread like waiting for the biopsy results right or or waiting to someday be reconciled with your son or daughter or your parent Uh, waiting for forgiveness when you've hurt somebody or waiting for an end to the pain Waiting can take take all different shapes and sizes, but we all experience it. Now, this Christmas season, this December, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about waiting, this very, very normal human emotion. What we're going to do is we're going to look at four stories in the book of Luke, uh, all surrounding the birth of Jesus, in which we find people waiting, waiting. Some are waiting for salvation. Some are waiting for justice. Some are waiting for peace. Some are waiting for hope. And in every case, as we're going to see, their anticipation, their longing, their waiting is fulfilled through the birth of Jesus. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. We're waiting. Well, my hope is that these stories, as we, as we look into them and, and process what they're waiting for, it'll give us some insight into our own moments of waiting and perhaps start to give us some answers to the question of where God is in the not yet. That's my hope. So let's dive in. We're going to look at the first story for this Christmas series. Please turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, which in the House Bibles is going to be page eight. 49. Now, as you're turning there, I'm going to pray for us, and then we will uh, start reading. Father God, we are waiting for you. We're waiting for you to move. We're waiting for your voice. And so this morning, as we look at your word, I pray that in our waiting, you would meet us. I ask that as I preach, I, I would just disappear, and that your Holy Spirit would remain. And I pray that every one of us would hear exactly what it is that you have for us this morning. Pray that we would not leave this time together unchanged. So, Father, would you speak? We are listening, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, I, I said oh, we were going to read it. First, I need to give you some setup, and then we'll read it. All right? So, let's talk about some of the worlds of the text. I talk about these a lot. We're going to talk today about the world behind the text and the world of the text, because it's important to understanding these stories. So we'll start with the world of the text. The world of the text is basically the literary nature of what we're about to read. This is how this book, like what's the the author trying to do literarily? What's some of the imagery? How is it connected to other passages in the Bible, etc.? The world of the text. So let's talk about that. The world of the text. Uh, It's important to remember, as we read these stories this month, that Luke has a specific goal in mind as he's telling these stories. He's not just like recounting historical facts. No, what he, he's an author. What he's trying to do is to place these stories within a much bigger narrative, a story that goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible if you look at just the first two chapters of Luke, he makes, no joke, dozens, dozens of references back to the Old Testament. Uh, some of them, he uses words that, that, you know, ring true from the Old Testament. He, he has uh, images or phrases that are repeated from the Old Testament. He even has actual characters show up who are mentioned in the Old Testament. There's dozens of these, these, these references. They're all references back to what, what came before. Um, it's kind of like for, for first century readers, for Luke's first, first people that he was writing to, they had grown up hearing all these stories, hearing all these passages of scripture, memorizing them as children. You know, this is this the, the, the words that meant so much to them and to their ancestors, and Luke is wanting to, to tie into all of those, those expectations of what came before. He wants it to ring a lot of familiar bells for his readers. It's kind of like it's like Star Wars or Marvel movies, right? If you go and you watch a Marvel movie or a Star Wars movie and you don't know any of the backstory, you can still enjoy it. You, you know, it's fine. It's good. But, well, they used to be a lot better, but whatever. Anyway, uh, you know, they're, they're good. But then if you know the lore and you know the backstory and you're like into all the different minutia of the world, suddenly like it just makes it come alive, right? Like there are two kinds of people. They're the kinds of people who are like, oh, interesting. Captain America picked up Thor's hammer and then there's the the other kind of people, right? They're like, whoa! yeah, you get it. All right. You get it. You understand my fellow people who understand that reference. So that's what Luke's trying to do in his, in his gospel here. He wants his readers to be like, whoa, whoa, cool. That, you know, like it's linking all these hyperlinks back to the Old Testament. Okay, so that's the, that's the world of the text that I want you to pay attention to. The second world that we need to pay attention to is the world behind the text. I said that he's, he's referencing all of these things that came before, so what did come before in the world behind the text? This is, by the way, Luke's world and the world of his first readers. What was it that they had been experiencing that brings this to light? Well, I'm not going to be able to get into the whole story of what came before. That would take a very long time, but put very, very, very simply, Luke and his his audience in in writing this book, they were people, Israelites, who were in a time of waiting, significant waiting. Uh, From the very beginning of the story, we know that God had promised that the people of God, that his people, the Israelites, were going to be used by him to heal the world. They knew that was his mission. And yet, by the time we get to first century AD, it sure seemed like that mission maybe got a little bit off track. About 500 years before Luke was written, so maybe, you know, half a millennium before, uh, the Israelites were really missing the point. I'll just put it that way. They had, their land was filled with sin and injustice and corruption and violence, right? They're supposed to be the ones healing the world, and instead they're breaking it. And so in that time, about 586 BC, God basically takes the israelites out of their home and he puts them in exile in babylon so the people of god are now under the thumb of this this enemy nation of babylon so that was what happened now eventually they came back to israel and they started to resettle the land and everything they rebuilt the temple but things just did not get back to what—they didn't get back on track. Because guess what? In Israel, even up to the first century AD, you had uh, more sin, more corruption, more injustice, more violence. All of that stuff continued to be the law of the land. And even though Babylon got destroyed, Israel continued to be under the thumb of these powerful empires. First it was Greece, then it was Rome— So you come to the the first century AD and you've got Roman troops marching through the streets of Jerusalem, and the people of God, the people of Israel, are waiting for salvation to come. When is God's mission going to get back on track? It's the world behind the text. So that brings us to Luke chapter 1, where we meet one of these waiting Israelites. So let's let's read about this man named Zechariah. So it starts in verse 5. When Herod was king of Judea, there was a Jewish priest named Zechariah. He was a member of the priestly order of Abia, and his wife Elizabeth was also from the priestly line of Aaron. Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all of the Lord's commandments and regulations. They had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive, and they were both very old. All right, we'll stop right there for a moment. Here we meet Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah was a a priest serving God in the temple. And uh, according to Luke, he and his wife were righteous people. In other words, with all that background of the sin and the corruption in Israel, that's not who they were. They were righteous. They obeyed God. They didn't just do whatever was right in their own eyes. And yet, he and his wife Elizabeth never had a child, Now, in our modern world, we understand that infertility can happen for a whole bunch of different reasons, right? There's a lot—and by the way, ancient people, including the authors of the Bible, know it was not always the woman's fault, okay? Just gonna say that. It happens for a whole bunch of different reasons, but back then— They didn't know that. In fact, infertility was seen as something to be very ashamed of or something that was, uh, you know, very, very embarrassing because the implication was if God blesses people with children and you don't have children, then God must be kind of disappointed in you. That's what, that's the way that people thought back then. And so you can imagine this, this, you know, couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, year after year, decade after decade, they're never given the blessing of a child. And I imagine that they were probably thinking, what did we do wrong? What did we do wrong? And I I know even today there are people like some of you who probably have felt that exact same thing, even though we know that's not the reason why. So they're wondering what's, what's going on. They're waiting for an answer of why they can't have a child But that's not the only thing they're waiting for. As I said before, the Israelites, including Zechariah and Elizabeth, were waiting for salvation. Salvation from their enemies, salvation from a world filled with sin, all of that. And so I like to use my imagination. It doesn't say this in the text, but I imagine Zechariah waiting for salvation. I imagine him, you know, going to the temple to do his work each day. And as he's walking, he's passing by, I don't know, passing by Roman soldiers. And maybe they're, they're hurling insults at him or, or ethnic slurs or something like that. Maybe they're even threatening him with their weapons and he's afraid for his life. And as he's walking, as he's as he's doing this day after day and seeing God's enemies walking the streets, I imagine him just just repeating to himself the words that have given him comfort for so many years—the words of the Old Testament prophets and the Psalms—and he's saying things like, "Oh Lord, how long? How long, O oh Lord, will my enemies have the upper hand?" or something. I I'm, just imagine him saying these words as prayers to God. So I just—that's kind of how I picture Zechariah. Well, as Luke tells us, on this one particular day. Uh, Zechariah is doing his job at the temple, and he gets the specific uh, honor of actually going into the temple, into the holy place, and lighting incense— And this was a deeply symbolic act because lighting incense in the temple represented the prayers of the people rising up to god and so in a way he's representing the prayers of the people as he's lighting this incense and i again doesn't say this but i imagine that as he's doing this act he's probably thinking through and and remembering all of these hopeful prophecies that that had been spoken before and wondering when are these things going to become true Again, I, I just imagine the kinds of things that would have been rolling through his, his mind. Like in, like in this prophecy from Isaiah, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. Zechariah saying, God, it is so dark here. When are you going to shine? Orton Jeremiah, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. And Zechariah's thinking, I'd love to see those plans for good. Or Isaiah, in that day, that coming day, the heir to David's throne will be a banner of salvation to all the world. The nations will rally to him, and the land where he lives will be a glorious place. I want Israel to be glorious again. Over and over, I picture these words giving Zechariah hope, taking taking shape as he's praying to God, hopes. That that even in his old age, he might yet see God returning to his people. That he might actually get to see the promised Messiah coming to save Israel. Or or if not that, if not that, I can imagine him saying, at least let me see the prophet, the one who is destined to come and pave the way. Because there's a bunch of prophecies about this coming guy, right? Uh, Like Malachi. Look, I'm sending my messenger. He will prepare the way before me, God says. I'm sending you the prophet Elijah. His preaching will turn the hearts of fathers to their children. Or in Isaiah, listen, it's the voice of someone shouting, clear the way through the wilderness for the Lord. Make a straight highway through the wasteland for our God. These were Zechariah's hopes. These were the hopes of a people in waiting. So Zechariah's waiting for a child. He's waiting for the Messiah. He is waiting like his people For salvation. And then one day, as he's serving in the temple, his waiting comes to an end. Good verse 11. This is what happens. While Zechariah was in the sanctuary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the incense altar. And Zechariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear when he saw him. But the angel said, don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. Your wife, Elizabeth, will give you a son, and you are to name him John. You will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. Right? Just imagine, Zechariah, your waiting is over. God has not forgotten you. He goes on. The angel goes on. He must never touch wine or other alcoholic drinks. He will be filled, read, instead, uh, with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. And he will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He will be a man with the spirit and the power of who? Of Elijah. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. And he will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. Now, did you catch all the references there? Did you catch all those hyperlinks? He will have the spirit of Elijah, your son will. He will prepare the way for the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. See, these are all direct quotes from the Old Testament. They're all direct quotes of the prophecies that we just read. Zechariah, you and Elizabeth are going to have a son who isn't just going to be anybody. He will be the prophet. The prophet whose job it is to announce the coming of the Lord. Think about what this would have meant to Zechariah. Think about it. God is finally bringing salvation to his people. And this elderly, faithful priest who has served God with anticipation his entire life is about to get a front row seat. Zechariah, your waiting is over. God has not abandoned you. Imagine what would have been racing through Zechariah's mind as he waited for those, those uh, months for his son to be born. Now we're not going to read the whole story, but I just want you to picture what, had he, what was his experience as he waited for this son to be born. Not only had he been waiting his entire life for a child, for the blessing of having a child, but his people, the Israelites, had been waiting for salvation for 500 years and longer They were waiting for the Messiah to come to save Israel from physical and spiritual exile, to bring the kingdom of God into a new golden age. They were waiting for God to bring salvation to the entire world. And now it's about to happen. So it's no surprise. It's no surprise to me that when Zechariah's son John is born and he's holding this baby boy in his arms, the words that come out of Zechariah's mouth might as well have been lifted straight from the pages of the Old Testament, straight from the the words of the prophets that he had been memorizing all his life. These words sound so familiar. Look at verse 68. Here's what he says as he holds his son John in his arms. Zechariah says, Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and redeemed his people. He has sent us a mighty Savior from the royal line of his servant David, just as he promised through his holy prophets long ago. Now we will be saved from our enemies and from all who hate us. He has been merciful to our ancestors by remembering his sacred covenant, the covenant he swore with an oath to our ancestor Abraham. We have been rescued from our enemies so we can serve God without fear, in holiness and righteousness for as long as we live. And you, my little son, you will be called the prophet of the Most High because you will prepare the way for the Lord. You will tell his people how to find salvation through forgiveness of their sins. Because of God's tender mercy, the morning light from heaven is about to break upon us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide us To the path of peace. The people sitting in darkness will see a great light. A prophet will prepare the way in the wilderness for the Lord. A savior from the line of David will bring salvation to the world. All of these prophecies are now coming true. The time of waiting for the people of Israel has come to an end, a new day was about to dawn. All the things that had been prophesied for hundreds of years were finally coming true. So, Zechariah's son, John, uh, he grew up to be the, the man that we call John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist did exactly what he was born to do. He lived in the wilderness like an old testament prophet. It's kind of weird. He he did kind of little stunts and stuff like that. But he baptized people and he prepared them for the coming of Jesus. That's what he did in the spirit of Elijah, just like he was supposed to. And of course, Jesus, he grew up to be that long-awaited Messiah. He also fulfilled ancient prophecies, but not exactly in the way that people expected. Okay, not exactly. Let me me give you some examples. Uh, Jesus did not end Roman occupation in Jerusalem. You think that he would, but he didn't. Instead, what happened? He let Rome execute him. But in so doing, but in so doing, as the Son of God, he invited humanity into a new kind of kingdom, to a new kind of kingdom where, where uh, power and violence and human empire were, were not the answers, were not the solutions, but instead, he invited them into a kingdom where the true power lay in self-giving love. He didn't uh, just rescue a few Israelites from their sinful ways, what, like people expected. No. He broke the back of sin's power over all of humanity, way more than people were expecting. He took sin's consequences on himself on the cross. He gave every human being a way to be washed clean of our sin, to be made righteous with God no matter what we've done. That's what he did. Guided by the Spirit of God, we too can walk in freedom. He didn't just give a little bit of hope for for people in the shadow of death. No, he, he rose from the grave and ended death's power once and for all. In other words, he fulfilled a story that began all the way back in the book of Genesis. He inaugurated a new creation where humans and their creator could live face to face again and where the brokenness of our world could finally be healed oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. The ancient cries of the people of God, a people in waiting, were finally answered in Christ. No wonder Zechariah was so overwhelmed. No wonder he was led to sing. So that's story number one. That's our little first glimpse of the, the waiting people of God. And, and I just love how Luke does this. I mean, if you, as a Bible nerd, like this is the coolest thing because all these hyperlinks are just so cool. I love the fact that he's doing this. I also love the fact that he's doing this through some very inauspicious characters, right? This this uh, childless priest, and in the weeks to come, we'll see through this uh, peasant girl in Galilee, and through these these uh, no-name, low-caste shepherds, and through this 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 these two elderly prophets. Like he is coming to to end the waiting of the people of God, but but Luke is using the stories of some very ordinary people to do it. He draws us in. And I love this too, because the way that Luke writes this, he draws us in to see ourselves in the story and to see how our own waiting is brought to an end by Jesus. But this raises a really big question. For me, I'm sure it does for you as well. Uh, if we're trying to put ourselves in Zechariah's story and all this stuff about waiting coming to an end, it raises a big question. Has it? Has our waiting actually come to an end? Because looks to me like our world is still broken, right? I mean, maybe it's just me, but our lives are still kind of hard. Right? Lives are hard. There is still sin and injustice and violence and oppression all around us. It's, it's part of our world. I mean, even Zechariah, right? Even Zechariah. All of this stuff was going to come true, and yet he never got to see it with his own eyes. He didn't, he didn't uh, ever see the day where Roman troops were no longer in control. He died before that ever happened. Uh, he didn't even get to see, most likely, the ministry of Jesus. It was all still not yet. It was still in the future. So, what do we do with this? Right? Because the whole basis of this series, the whole basis of our of our singing at Christmas time is the idea that, that the coming of Christ changed everything. So if that's what Luke wants us to pick up, then why are things still the same? Why is my body still broken? Why are my loved ones still estranged? Right? Why, why am I still addicted? and anxious, and traumatized, and in pain. If our waiting was really over, was actually over on Christmas morning, then why am I still holding on for dear life? It's a fair question, guys. It's a fair question. Well, here, the way I understand it, we are being invited in to attention. It's a tension that, in fact, Luke is actually well aware of. If you read the rest of his gospel and and the sequel, so to speak, of the book of Acts, which he also wrote, if you read both of those, you realize he's well aware of this tension that Christ followers, you and me, we are living in both the now and the not yet. We're living in the now and the not yet. What I mean is that things did fundamentally change in our world because of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Things actually fundamentally changed. His kingdom has been spreading and moving and changing our world every day since. But it is not yet fully here. I'll give you some examples. Because Jesus came, today, today, we are freed from the slavery to sin. We are not enslaved. We're not chained to sin anymore. Now, one day, sin won't even be an option anymore, right? We are going to be able to live without even thinking about sin, but not yet. Not yet. No, we still today have to make a choice of whether to obey God or whether to do whatever seems right in our own eyes. It is a choice. It is a choice, which is what changed, but we're not there yet. Another example, uh, because Jesus came, we no longer have to fear death. We don't have to fear it. Now, one day, death won't even be an issue anymore, won't even exist anymore. But in this world, we still have to pass through that veil. It is not yet time for death to be gone for good. We have to pass through that. But we don't have to be afraid. That's what changed. Another example, because Jesus came, as N.T. Wright often puts it, uh, we are are now able to learn how to speak the language of love, right? That's the language we speak in new creation, as he says it. However, we are not, someday, one day, we're going to be singing in it, right? We're going to be completely fluent, but not yet. Learning how to speak the language of love, it's still tricky, There's still some really difficult vocab and and verb conjugations that are tripping us up. Love is hard to speak now. And so, yes, we can now learn how to speak it, but we're not fluent yet. We're not. My point is this. You're waiting for something. Because it's part of being human. You're waiting for something. I'm waiting for something. We are all eagerly anticipating the day when our world, our broken world, will change for good. Good. And so because we're waiting, it can be so easy to be discouraged by the not yet. Like, why isn't it better yet? Why haven't things changed? But here's what I, this, this December, I don't want you to miss the now. Yes, the not yet is real, but so is the now. Our world did change when Jesus was born. Our lives today are different because he came. Today, you and I can be confident Confident that Christ is here, that he is working, that he is bringing life and justice and healing if we have eyes to see it. God has not forgotten you in your waiting. Emmanuel, which just means God with us, is right here. He's here. Let that be the hope that uplifts you even as you wait for the end of the story. Zechariah never saw what God would accomplish. But as he held in his arms the sun that he once thought was impossible, these are the words that he spoke with confident expectation. Because of God's tender mercy, the morning light from heaven is about to break upon us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, and to guide us to the path of peace. This Christmas, let's remember that God's morning light has already begun to shine in this dark world. Emmanuel has come. Guys, we are living in the sunrise. We're living in the sunrise. We get to bask in the light of Christ and reflect it to the people around us, even as we still wait for the day when the darkness will be no more. Let's pray. Well, Father, I see this as an invitation. An invitation from you to us to trust that that even in the midst of our waiting when we might face discouragement or we might face uh, despair, that even in that we know that your words are not never, your words are not yet. And Father, even as we are are wrestling with that and coming to grips with the hope that we have, the confidence that we have of what you are going to do, I pray that you would also give us confidence and the, the eyes to see the now. Would you help us become aware of how you are already working to change this world, how you have already made such a huge difference in this brokenness, and how you have given us a reason to hope and believe. We trust you, we walk with you, Father, and we are so grateful that you sent your son to become one of us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.